and this week, Monday, yet another piece of information. I would expect, expect such a gentleman to bring us wisdom and joy, but no need for me to waffle because General Ben Hodges is here. Welcome, General. Thank you very much for coming. Hey, guys. Good evening. Good Abend. Good evening. Welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. Greetings from Frankfurt. Very glad to hear. Well, well. So, what a momentous day. Uh, beginning of last week and the weekend, we were looking at the surprising news, which then led to freedom for all of the Kharkiv Oblast. This evening, we're hearing news that frontline troops in the south-southwest and in Kherson city are surrendering. Who would have thunk it? Well, I did, uh, and I think actually several other people did, um, that Ukraine, that Ukrainian victory was inevitable. What I did not anticipate was how quickly, uh, at least in this area that we're looking at now, the Russian forces uh, would collapse. Um, I, I've been watching the Russians now for the past few months. You could see that their logistics were exhausted. Uh, we knew that they had culminated um, back in August. And this is where I think the Ukrainian general staff, and of course they're getting some help and advice, but really the Ukrainian general staff deserves so much credit. They understood Nepo uh, Clausewitz's uh, concept of the culminating point, and they could see that the Russians were going to culminate in August. And so I believe they began preparing even back then the, the plan for how they were going to launch a counteroffensive after the Russians had culminated. And so you have a combination of endless strikes using HIMARS and other weapons against Russian logistics, uh, command posts, uh, special forces hits throughout the country occupied areas to include in Crimea, uh, all of the things that really put a lot of pressure and disrupted the Russian logistics and command and control. At the same time, they, they maintain a level of operational security, what we call OPSEC, uh, that is masterful. When you think of how many thousands of people would have had cell phones, uh, and yet the Ukrainians were able to move troops up into the north without being detected. And then to cap it all off, openly talking about this huge counteroffensive that was going to happen in Kherson, and the Russians took the bait and shifted troops down there. That That's so impressive to me. Now, when we look at what is happening this evening, this uh, astonishing momentum, yes, certain troops have surrendered in the Izium area. Some actually have been fighting even so this afternoon, albeit that these are stragglers and we're, clean, uh, we're seeing that the Ukrainians are cleaning the space. Um, but the outright surrender, negotiated surrender, as it seems, of large-scale um, contingents of Russian forces, we haven't seen since Tullenberg. Well, I, I don't know about that. I mean, you know, there were during the Second World War, uh, there were huge uh, captures of of troops. But what what really matters here is that um, if if we see um, what looks to be large amounts, uh, large numbers of Russians surrendering or leaving the battlefield, abandoning the equipment. I mean, it really could have a cascading effect. Remember, of course, you know, and, and many of the participants tonight know that uh, the vast majority of Russian soldiers that are doing the fighting and the dying are not kids from uh, Moscow or St. Petersburg. They're out from the hinterlands. And uh, perhaps... Uh, you know, their their resolve um, to stick around in such a bad situation will not be that great, uh, particularly in the, in the absence of uh, inspirational leadership and a chance that they might win. So I think there is something there. We just have to be careful that we don't start planning the victory parade yet. There's still a lot of hard fighting to go. I think that that, that is certainly true. I mean, uh just like the Ukrainian general staff will have to take this very carefully and uh, cautiously if the enemy gets a vote. Um, yesterday we saw that uh, Russian armed forces were still in the north, 
meaning from essentially the Oskil um, Reservoir passing through Svatove and then Starobilsk, I mean names which other people remember, see remember from the Second World War, uh, but they've been passing through in en route to hopefully, from their perspective, reinforcing the Donbas. How? But on the other hand, uh, Ukrainian troops are now capturing these areas. We understand that this evening they have closed in on Kremina. They're closing the salient. There's no escaping for the troops to the west of that line the Russian troops, that is. How do you see the, the approach, this massive uh, forward momentum of the Ukrainian armed forces in the north and towards the Donbass? Well, I think there's two or three things for us to watch. Um, it looks to me, you know, like all of us are looking at the various maps that are out there, people trying to figure out what's going on. You can sort of see everything moving towards Crimea. Um, and the idea that they could uh, encircle large numbers of Russian troops and equipment, uh, bring about surrender or their destruction, and uh, and then you get close enough with uh, to Crimean Peninsula with long-range rockets uh, capability. Uh, now you're now you're talking about daily rocket strikes on airfields and seaport of Sevastopol and other. Russian uh, military facilities on the Crimean Peninsula, in my view, once that starts, then it's just a matter of time. Uh, Crimea becomes untenable. So uh, almost in a in a way kind of like uh, uh, warfare back in the uh, 18th, 17th century, siege warfare, where it's all about moving the big guns close enough uh, to knock down the castle walls or the walls of the fortification. This this is opportunity that I see if they are successful and able to bring uh, those rocket launchers forward. Now, that means, of course, that they've got to uh, turn the Russian forces that are in Kherson there that are potentially trapped, um, turn them out of position or bring about their surrender so that then uh, the Ukrainian forces could move eastward, southeastward from Kherson. Uh, the other thing that we've got to be watching, of course, is Ukrainian logistics. Um, I'm I'm going to go out on the limb and say that the uh, Ukrainian general staff, which has done such an excellent job getting us to where we are now, uh, they will have anticipated both the possibility of failure, but also the possibility of success, and that they would have uh, been uh, shepherding fuel and ammunition and other things necessary to maintain the momentum of this attack if it's successful, and it looks like it is now. Um, uh, we had another question uh, in any event, which was leading to the same thing. If you could just separate, I mean, you highlighted already that this is all driving towards Crimea, that when tri Crimea gets in range, and essentially um, with this operational range Ukraine then has with its um, various long-range um, missiles, whatever system, uh, I mean, there's one which you and I would prefer, I presume, but nevertheless, whatever they have, that they can threaten Sevastopol and therefore deny the space and deny um, the Russians controlling Crimea, that by that time, Russia will have to make a decision as to how to leave Crimea, not where, not uh, if to leave. That's, that's correct. I, I think the prize is Crimea. And President Zelensky said, um, this started, this war started with Crimea and it's going to end with Crimea. And, you know, the, the, uh, end state, the objective is total restoration of Ukrainian sovereignty to include Crimea. So if the Ukrainians are able to begin, um, hitting targets all over Crimea, Sevastopol, obviously, but uh, there, as you know, there are several air, air bases and, uh, other, military installations there, once they start hitting those um, with rockets every day, then I do believe it's just a matter of time because the Russians are unable to stop. Uh, they can't knock down these uh, HIMARS uh, and other rockets that are coming in. So, and, and then there is a decision point for the Russians. I mean, what, what do they do? And uh, we just have to make sure that we, the West, that, that we don't give in to pressure to uh, somehow 
settle for some sort of negotiated settlement, especially if we're that close. We've got to see this through to the end. I think this is the key element, and uh, Peter Doran uh, had just highlighted it whilst uh, you were coming back up. That in, I think, both our first segments when we were when we had the pleasure of having you on our space, you highlighted what the target outcome was, and you also said that uh, towards the end of August one would have to expect, and you would envisage Ukraine going on the offensive. Now end of August, beginning of September, who cares? You called it and you projected what potential outcomes there might be. It seems evident that Ukraine is going to win this in the battlefield. Yes, that, that, that's what I believe for sure. How would you think that they are going to go about it? I mean, they seem to be very, very adept at exploiting opportunities which present themselves. The, uh, the logistics on the Russian side fail. They react slowly to moves on the Ukrainian side, and they don't seem to be able to anticipate what the Ukrainians are capable of. What would you think are good next steps? So, um, of course, you know what I'm reporting or, or saying is based on looking at open source, not being there on the ground. So I could be wrong in, in, in some of my assessment uh, for, for sure. But what we see is a Ukrainian armed forces that have um, um, been disciplined, patient, uh, methodical almost, to create the opportunities that they're exploiting now. Um, and I think the continued delivery of ammunition and, and capabilities by the United States and other allies uh, and supporters, 50 nations met uh, this past week at Ramstein, um, has given Ukraine the confidence that they can sustain what they're doing, that they can keep it up. And uh, what you don't see is uh, big uh, attacks, frontal attacks going into the uh, the teeth of Russian defenses, but instead they're doing things using their HIMARS and other rocket launchers very um, cleverly to knock out ammunition stockpiles, command and control nodes, headquarters, and uh, the lines of communication. So at, so at that point, then, the, the frontline combat troops of the Russian forces, they don't have any food, they don't have any water, they don't have any medical care, they don't have ammunition, and their artillery support is drying up. That's, that's how you defeat a large conventional artillery army like the Russians. The largesse of the um, large Russian army seems to be limited when it comes to real trucking capacity. We were told over the past weeks that they had replaced in certain areas uh, the delivery by rail already in uh, the north from Belgorod Oblast into Izum, for example, and that they had run trucks and trucks and trucks. But it seems that these supplies have not been sufficient and many trucks have been stuck by supporting troops to be relocated when they thinned out their front lines in Donbass in order to then resupply Kherson. It seems from the outside, I have not been on general staff. That is a privilege which definitely, fortunately, was denied because I would not have been capable, I'm sure. But you've seen the, these kind of theatres. How do you rate the Russian strategies and their general staff vis-a-vis -vis the Ukrainians? Well, look, uh, transport is the most important of all the logistical functions because without transportation, it doesn't matter all the stuff you have or what you have. And never in my life have I been in a place where I had enough trucks, whether it was in Iraq or Afghanistan or, or any other place, you always want more transport. And uh, the Russian logistical system right now is being asked to do something that it was never designed to do. It was designed for, and, and what they practiced was big, long movements inside the Russian Federation on their own rail lines, uh, not trying to support um, long-term sustained land combat operations outside of Russia. But that's exactly what it's having to do. Uh, they've lost, we know, over a thousand trucks uh, in the first six months. So that's a thousand trucks and probably a thousand drivers. Uh, and 
you know, not just any truck can carry ammunition or pull heavy uh, equipment. It's certain types of trucks. And, and so the uh, destruction or uh, reutilization of these trucks has significantly reduced the ability of Russia to keep up their artillery fire. Remember, it was just a month ago, um, people were wringing their hands. Oh, my God, they're firing 60,000 rounds a day. They're killing hundreds of Ukrainian troops. That's not happening anymore. It's not not to that extent. Um, and every time one of these uh, ammunition storage points goes up in smoke, the Russians end up having to move it further back on the rail line, which adds to the burden of the truck fleet. So it's a the Ukrainians were very smart to to go after that. They understand that's how the Russian logistical system is set up. Now, with the de- with the degradation, sorry, Tim, one, one sec. With the degradation of their supply lines at this point in time, do you do you consider it likely, from your perspective and with your background in logistics, do you consider it likely that they will run out of more and more items? very, very quickly in different frontline areas. And mm. would that be a cascading effect of their demise, which brings them to their demise? Well, of course, the, the I can't, uh, I'm not going to dodge the question, but I can't answer it fully because I don't, I still don't know how much they started with. I mean, it's, it's clear they have, you know, zillions of rounds of conventional artillery uh, ammunition, but, uh, they've they've consumed an enormous amount, and we also know that uh, much of what they have, a significant percentage, has not been properly cared for. Uh, artillery ammunition is not like a hammer; you just lay it around. It's, it's it has a shelf life, and and so um, it, it, and the Russians, I think, in my estimate, are not famous for properly maintaining and taking care of things like ammunition and and maintenance on all the all all their weapon systems and and part of the breakdown of logistics means not only does ammunition not move forward but also the lubricants and spare parts and all the bits and pieces required to keep heavy machinery going that's also not making it anywhere so uh that in that regard there is a sort of cascading effect and we also know that um the uh Russians are unable to properly replace or replenish most of the precision weapons they're using thanks to uh, sanctions. They can no longer import uh, certain chips and components that are needed for their high-end uh, missiles. Uh, this is a good thing, obviously, but they still have, I'm sure, several hundred. Um, so it, it's hard. I, I just don't know. That's always uh, bugged me. I, I don't have a feel for how much they have left. No, good point. That's the fog of one, obviously. I mean, with a bit of luck, maybe some agencies and uh, definitely the Ukrainian general staff may have better information from their own humans and SIGINT. But um, from what we hear on a regular basis is that the Ukrainians seem to be dealing with scarcity and with challenges better, that they behave like a modern Western army. They're very careful. They're very methodic. And they prepare their logistics. So, for example, the follow-on troops in Kharkiv Oblast were perfectly positioned to take care of what could then be an advance by the other uh, brigades in an uh, yeah, well, textbook. I, I don't know how to put it better. They have gobbled up Western doctrine and modern warfare within the last eight years to an extent, which is outright astonishing. Well, look... Um... I think we, it's also important to note that, and I don't disagree with anything you said, the, uh, the Ukrainians have taken advantage of things that are already in their favor. Uh, their rear area is totally secure. I mean, there are millions of Ukrainians in their rear, so they're able to move uh, there and not worry about uh, partisan attacks or Russian special forces or anything like that disrupting their supply lines other than the occasional uh, Russian rocket. Uh, the Russian Air Force has been uh, not completely removed from the uh, from this war, but I mean, they other than launching missiles from over their own Russian uh, airspace or Belarusian airspace, they're not doing anything. I mean, if the Russian Air Force was in the fight, it'd be much more difficult. That's that's the Ukrainians have helped uh, create that set of circumstances. Uh, whereas the Russians, their rear area is inside occupied territory, 
and they're having to deal with uh, partisans, special forces, uh, and so on. Another thing that has, has surprised me is how incapable the Russians are of doing what we call dynamic targeting. I mean, they can hit cities and, and railway stations that are known points, but you just don't hear too many reports about uh, them hitting convoys, bringing equipment from Poland, for example, into Ukraine or, or being able to hit trains carrying equipment uh, on the move. They, they just don't seem to have that ability. And so the Ukrainians have been able to exploit that as well. Yeah, if you allow me to switch gears a little bit, we've had this discussion earlier today on the space and with, with other parties as well. It seems to me that it seems to definitely also to our um, founder and um, Canadian officer uh, Yehuda that this is the time where the West really needs to step up and support that success with more weapons so that they can press on the advantage, right? Yeah, the worst thing in the world right now would be for any of the 50 nations that are supporting Ukraine to say, oh, come on, we need to uh, um, we need to uh, give the give Putin an off ramp, give him a chance to escape. Let him, you know, let's stop this. Uh, I saw where President Elves on Twitter said that uh, he's hearing in some European capitals. Come on, haven't hasn't Ukraine humiliated Putin enough? I mean, these are people that absolutely, President Ilves is not saying that, obviously, but he's irritated and frustrated that there are um, people in some European capitals that are saying, hasn't Putin been humiliated enough? Uh, these kind of idiots have zero understanding of uh, the Russians, of the Kremlin, of, of what the Russians intend to do. And, and so uh, we have got to make sure that we stick together. And that we keep the keep our that we help the Ukrainians keep their foot on the neck of the Russians. Do not give them a chance to rebuild, reorganize, reconstitute. Uh, this was a mistake we, that was uh, I think we uh, contributed to back in March. Once the Russians began to withdraw from Kiev, and they realized they were not going to make it, and they started pulling everybody back, and they started moving troops around towards the Donbass. Remember the uh, they? Uh, oh yeah. All right. There was a period of about four weeks where they were trying to uh, unscrew themselves. That's when if we had been providing if we had been providing Ukraine long range capabilities, then could have been smashing these units while they were still trying to get reorganized. Instead, they were allowed to reorganize and then launch the next phase uh, in the eastern part of Ukraine. We They let them. We caused the Ukrainians or did not give the Ukrainians the ability to take advantage of that opportunity. Cannot do that again. We have got to uh, finish this. Yeah, uh, I fully subscribe to the same view. I understand, Tim, you had a question as well. I did, yeah. I just wanted your thoughts, General, on the uh, on Russian capabilities around regroup and counterattack. I mean, do you think do you think they're capable of doing of doing anything realistic to turn any tide anywhere at this point? I'm not seeing it. Um, in order to do that, they would have to have fixed quite a few problems that I think are baked into the, uh, the culture of this very corrupt uh, Ministry of Defense and military. I mean, they have a lot of expensive quality equipment. Um, they have a lot of people. But um, I have not seen... I'm trying to think if I've seen a single example in the last six months of Russian forces fighting, uh, conducting what we would call a joint operation where you had the Air Force and support a ground maneuver or um, that there was any sort of coordination between the services. The Navy has done zero uh, to help ground forces. And they've also, but to my surprise, I overestimated not a I don't think there's been a single actual amphibious operation anywhere along the uh, Black Sea coast. I think there was one sort of uh, uh, small one in Azov coast. But, you know, you've got this, you've got total control of the Black Sea. You've got thousands of naval infantry. And I had expected that they would be launching uh, amphibious operations all along the Black Sea coast, bypassing Ukrainian defenders, etc. Zero. And so if they can't 
do joint operations, then they are not going to be able to mount any kind of serious large-scale uh, counterattacks against what Ukrainians are doing right now. I, I don't see it. And for sure, their intelligence, Ukrainian intelligence, U.S. intelligence, British intelligence, and others will all be looking for any sort of uh, massing, if you will, whether it's inside Russia or somewhere else inside Ukraine, uh, to help detect that before it could ever get going. It's interesting to see that in, in this regard, I mean, uh, <laughs> my favorite tool in battle, the Air Force, on the Russian side, is so ineffective and so incompetent, has so many maintenance failures, such a lack of uh, training amongst their pilots, they are not playing a role at all. And today we see SU-25 going down due to uh, pilot error. Yeah. But look, uh, of course, you and everybody that's listening uh, to this uh, knows that um, having a lot of airplanes, even really nice ones, does not equal having a great air force. Um, it, it is about readiness. It's about training. It's about understanding uh, or having a concept of operations. You know, for any air force, and I'm saying this as, as an infantry soldier, uh, the air force, job one is achieve air superiority on day one. I mean, that's what our Air Force would do. That's what the Royal Air Force would do and so on. Um, get air superiority, which means destroying air bases, knocking out air defense, and knocking the uh, your opponent's air force out of the sky. The Russians failed to do that. And I think um, it's because their pilots have not really flown in a combat environment. I mean, what they were doing in Syria, give me a break. Uh, that's That's not the same thing. And so they were not trained and organized in such a way where you could um, achieve air superiority in a heavily contested environment. And so even though they had superiority in numbers, Ukrainians were much more effective at knocking down Russian aircraft to the point now where the Russian Air Force does not even want to fly over Ukraine, uh, instead launching missiles from outside outside of Ukrainian airspace. And I think also there's this culture, uh, or they don't have the culture of joint operations where the services uh, provide capabilities uh, working in concert. And look, that is not natural. It, it is hard as hell. Uh, we practice a lot on doing these things. It is very difficult. Um, so you have to, you have to make it a point of effort uh, to be able to fight joint. They clearly uh, don't do that. Yeah, it seems that, uh, as you said, the culture of uh, that Russian, it's hard to call it an army, but the, the Russian armed forces really don't like to work and train. They're not set up for that. And you're only, you only fight as good as you train at best. So they are a failure in that regard. We've seen, by the way, some, some funny little anecdote, which are, we've heard from our Ukrainian friends, is that they're making use of the German Gepards even as mobile air defense and uh, killing off, uh, say, the very few intruding um, Russian um, yeah, Air Force uh, components, especially the helicopters, who are supposed to hold them up if and when our Ukrainian friends are advancing. So even the Gepards are quite useful now. They're finally in their original habitat. Yeah, the, the Gephardt actually um, is quite an amazing weapon system because of the uh, amount of fire, the rate of fire um, that it that it can uh, do to knock down helicopters, drones, uh, but also uh, it is very effective in a ground support role so that you could pull it up and start uh, uh, punishing uh Bunkers, trenches, uh, or if you call it Russian uh, vehicles out in the open, uh, is a devastating uh, effect. Of course, it that rate of fire means it goes through a lot of ammunition very quickly. So, but that's you know that's that's a logistical problem. The effectiveness of the weapon system uh, is undoubted. But it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, Rammstein one showed us. Um, that many people were quite hesitant to provide uh, sensible weapon systems. We were all wondering as to why does it have to be the Gepards provided by the Germans? Why can't it be at least the Leopard ones as recce tanks? Why can't they give some Leopard twos? Well, 
or the Marders, but at least those Gephards got wrangled out of them. And it seems that in the northern advance towards uh, um, the Oskil Reservoir, those have made a significant difference. So I think so. Yeah, I, I would agree. So how would you see the opportunity? We've heard earlier today, shifting gears briefly, before we go to uh, the many hands we have up, and I hope you have a little bit of time for the questions. How do we see it now that Ms. Lambrecht, the German Minister of Defence, has now come out with yet another statement that she really doesn't want battle tanks to be released, even not delivered, not even released for third-party export. How does that fit together? Yeah, I'm I'm a little confused uh, by this. I, I think that uh, um, there's you know there's political components of this, and then there's readiness components of the uh, the German Bundeswehr. Um, they look. They are still recovering from probably fifteen years of political decisions that uh, put them in the in the situation where they are, where they don't have. Um, they're not at the level of readiness that you would expect from the Great German Bundeswehr. Um, why they don't provide tanks, I, th I think it's missed opportunity. But it, it's also worth keeping in mind: uh, the United States has not provided the single Abrams, nor has the UK provided the single Challenger. So um, I don't know that it's uh, useful, and I'm not defending it, but the fact that Germany doesn't fight Leopard is not uh, unique in and of itself. There, there's so many other things that I think that Germany could be providing. So I, I, don't, I don't spend time worrying about Leopards. What would be on your wish list for Ukraine from tonight, uh, for example? Well, Germany has rocket launchers, multiple lo rocket launchers also. And they also have precision munitions. So this, this to me is the number one thing that the Ukrainians, of which the Ukrainians need more, um, the uh, to continue to provide them the ability to reach out and um, touch logistic sites, uh, headquarters, air defense systems, uh, the way that they've been doing that. That would be, um, in my view, ideal uh, from the German Bundeswehr. And then number two is. Uh, the missile defense. I mean, the Russians are going to continue lobbing um, all sorts of missiles into residential areas, uh, killing civilians. And so uh, until we can eliminate the places from which they're shooting, uh, we've got to continue to help Ukraine protect their civilians from getting murdered by Russians. So missile defense system would be number two on my list. So more Mars, Iris T's, more work for Deal and Henschold. Okay. Well, we have more questions for you. If you don't mind, I would start with uh, Peter Doran, and then we'll work our way through Craig and John Howard and end with our friend M. Peter. Thank you, Axel. Uh, ben, it's good to see you on the space here. Axel, I just have a quick comment on leadership and then a quick follow-up uh, uh, for Ben on his perspective. Ben, good to see you here. Uh, you know, Ben, something I've learned from your example over many years is that you are extremely open and honest when uh, you were wrong or you made a mistake, uh, and you're equally humble and quiet uh, about the thousand and one times that you were right. Uh, so uh, I know that you're not one to toot your own horn uh, about being correct, but uh, I can tell you, uh, folks on this space remember when you were here in May and you nailed it. You called it. You said, you know, this is my perspective. This is how I think things are going to turn out. Uh, and uh, to be fair, there's a lot of opinions on this war that are flying around the Internet. Uh, I have not known anyone to be more accurate than you uh, in predicting how things were going and explaining why they were happening that way. So well done, Ben. Thank you, sir. Well, Peter, thank you. Uh, but there's also a lot of times where I was wrong. I've had a lot of practice on that, too. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Here's my question. Um, you have been very accurate in saying, look, I'm not going to second guess the generalship of the Ukrainians. They're doing a great job. I'm I'm just going to observe here. But if you were in a, a position of being a commander of forces, uh, what signs and indicators uh, would you be looking for uh, to see if and when you, uh, the Russians were trying to reconstitute some kind of battle line? Uh, there's been talk that maybe they might fall back and try and create some sort of new defensive line. What signs and indicators on the either battlefield side or the political side, would you be looking forward uh, to see, uh, to get a sense of how the Russians are going to respond to what is uh, very obviously a significant defeat on their part? And again, so, Ben, thank you. 
Yeah, Peter, thank you. Um, so, of course, you know, the commander's looking at what's in front of him, but he's also got to be looking at real deep. Um, if there was going to be a counterattack of uh, some sort, that would be forming up much further to the rear. So I'd be I'd be looking for logistics uh, buildups. Uh, I'd be listening to intercepted communications. Uh, and, of course, you'd always be wary of, of deception. And I think the... Uh, I would imagine that the Ukrainian general staff is doing just that, that they're not only counting noses of who's in front of them, but also we, there's something called order of battle. And uh, every intelligence officer has a, a chart, an OB chart, order of battle, where it lists all the known units that are in an organization. So whether it's in the Western Military District or the 3rd Army or the 25th Division or whatever it is, you know from intelligence collection, from prisoners, et cetera, who's out there. And so you're trying to account for everybody. And that's that's the key is accounting for, hey, where's this uh, tank battalion? We, we can't find them. Well, that tank battalion may be hiding somewhere waiting to be used in a counterattack. So I'm sure that that's what Ukrainian general staff uh, intelligence teams are doing is trying to on their OB charts account for everybody. That's that's how they an, anticipate uh, some sort of a, a counterattack. But but you also are correct in that there's at the uh, political level. I mean, um, watching what's going on in the Kremlin. Uh, how much dissension is there? I I can't believe that Shoigu and Gerasimov still have their jobs. So it's either because of uh, total loyalty is being rewarded um, or they don't have somebody better to replace them. Uh, but I imagine that Ukrainians, because they know all these guys, they know who everybody is. Uh, they're watching to see um, who moves up the food chain inside the uh, Russian uh, chain of command and, and, as indicators also. That, that's a very interesting point, which we've discussed a little earlier with Yehuda together, that essentially people are now waiting who uh, meets the next window, because it cannot continue like this. Thousands of people taking prisoners of war, um, many thousand casualties. The indications which we heard from friends at the general staff were significantly higher than what has been published as verified so far. Not many leaders have survived such a level of um, yeah, defeat. Let's move to Craig. Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you, Axel. And thank you again, General Hodges, for joining us. Um, I can't say that enough. Um, I want to, if I could, um, you, you kept on mentioning logistics over and over and over again. And, and I couldn't help but, but warm my heart when I would hear that uh, phrase be repeated. Um, if you could speak to me a little bit about, from your perspective, again, as a general officer and the general staff, this, the, the complexity of the logistics that are involved not just at this local operational level, but at quite literally the national level of Ukraine. As you had mentioned, trains coming in from Poland, Ukraine being able to operate a train network to get things where they need to be. You can't get a truck from the border of Poland all the way to where you need it to be. You need to move great quantities. Can you speak to a little bit about the complexity of what that is and just how much staff work goes into not only, of course, the battle preparations, right? Your field officers, uh, your field colonels, um, and majors and so on, but on the on the side that doesn't so much go boom, right? They, they, these guys are quite guys and girls are quite literally sitting there uh, running these kind of computations. Can you kind of work us through what that looks like at a general staff level, and then try and bring us into the operational level, logistically speaking, to what we just saw here in the Kharkiv Oblast? Yeah, um, thanks for that, Craig. Um, when I was a major at Fort Leavenworth at the uh, what was then called the Army Command and General Staff College. So Staff College, you know, we had to take a big block of instruction on logistics. And that, for me, like, oh, my God, this is painful. You know, I'm an infantryman. I don't care about all that. Uh, as I became older, I realized that actually that's what's what mattered the most was logistics and that I had to leave the the fun stuff, the maneuver stuff to the young guys. And, and my job as the commander of U.S. Army Europe um, or as a director of operations in Regional Command South in Kandahar, was to make sure that they had what they needed, transport, um, medical care, uh, ammunition, food, water, fuel, blah, blah, blah. 
So, um, but when I'm sitting in the staff college, there was one thing that I remember, I'll never forget it, um, is it number one imperative for logistics is anticipation. Anticipation. Because uh, most likely the maneuver guys like me would never think about how much fuel I needed or, uh, you know, how long it would take to move a sufficient artillery ammunition from A to B to support the support the plan. <clears throat> and so the best logisticians are very good at anticipating requirements. And so they are always trying to move stuff, get it in place where they can react quickly, uh, whether, again, it was ammunition or uh, having to medevac casualties. Uh, but they're also paying attention to the truck fleet, for example. I mean, imagine a truck that's carrying a few thousand pounds of uh, or kilos of heavy ammunition or, or thousands of liters of fuel. That is a lot of wear and tear. On trucks, and they're not moving up and down I-95 or I-10. I mean, they're moving over uh, dirt roads, old roads. It's a lot of wear and tear. So you're having to anticipate: Do we have enough maintenance to keep our trucks going? Uh, so that's that stuck in my mind: the anticipation part, and uh, not waiting to be told, "Hey, I need more ammo." Uh, the second thing is consumption rates. This this. Uh, in fact, I was talking to a dear friend last night who is, um, let's just say he's affiliated with logistics at the top level in the U.S. And um, I said, I sure hope somebody is studying what's going on now, how much artillery ammunition, how much fuel, how many uh, air defense uh, interceptors are being expended in this six months because it dwarfs anything that we did in 20 years of Iraq or Afghanistan. And so the industrial base, of course, is having to uh, crank up uh, production because we've gone through so much. And, and so I think the calculations, if you're planning, and so I guarantee you what happened with the Ukrainian general staff. They probably had some old books that said, hmm, if you're doing an attack this size against this kind of a prepared defensive position, the rule of thumb or the planning factor is, X thousands of rounds. And then they would have taken a look at what they had and said, okay, we've got to get more up here, but we need to anticipate maybe, maybe we break through early. And so we can, uh, we want to have ammunition left for the breakthrough, for the follow up. So this is the kind of, uh, calculations. I mean, it's a lot of math here, uh, mixed with the art, uh, to, to produce the effect. That's required. And if there's, and I suspect there's some logisticians out there listening right now. I hated when a logistician would say, Oh, sir, we, we delivered a million liters of fuel. I would say, That's great. I needed two million. So, you know, what really matters is, um, percentage of requirement, not round numbers, because that, at the end of the day, that's what matters. Did you deliver what was needed? I don't care how much was actually delivered. And it no, seems it, to be oh. sorry, correct. And it seems to be that the Ukrainians, as Craig has been preaching on this space since March, have done a marvelous job for their follow-up troops to be supplied well. Yeah, it, it certainly appears that way so far, and, and we'll know in a couple of weeks if they're able to maintain this sort of tempo, which I really hope they are. Um, that will be the uh, uh, verification of that. And, and Craig, I just want to follow add up. I did very briefly because I know we have hands. Uh, I can talk about logistics with you. That was a part of my training. Um, I was uh, AC rated in U.S. Navy, and there's a lot of logistics that were involved there, a lot of math and computations that exist. And and I just want to highlight, and I thank you so much for highlighting the the effort that goes into this. Um, it is not. It doesn't show up on a Twitter feed. Doesn't go on an Instagram or a TikTok <laughs> or a Telegram page. It certainly doesn't. Right. Nobody wants to see a bunch of people in the back staff room, uh, crunching numbers and doing timetables. Um, not, not times multiple, but time on your watch timetables. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and these folks, these Ukrainians to your point, and this is where I'll conclude. We need to here in the West be humble and learn from what the Ukrainians have done here because they have set the example. They have set the pace by which we should all as whether you're current lo logistics or former logistics, 
this sets the pace in terms of what the standard should be going forward. They can do this in six months while their country's in a war, while their infrastructure is being bombed, while they're being cruise missiled, and they're still able to pull it off. Um, these folks are very quiet. They're very humble to you, sir. But uh, they do deserve a, a big shouting round of applause for the job that they have done to this point. So thank you again for highlighting them. Absolutely. Yep. Thank you very much for singing the praises of logistics. Um, if I may, before we go to John Howard, I have one uh, question from CJ who had tried to come up for 20 minutes already. CJ, please. No, sorry. Thank you all so much. And, sir, thanks for, for being here. When we spoke last in April, May, we talked uh, pretty extensively about the main weapon system that was being delivered to Ukraine, which, of course, was just the M777 howitzers along with a lot of small arms. So my question for you, sir, is how do we move forward from here? And by that, I mean there's been a lot of uh, speculation that perhaps future aid deliveries to Ukraine and, and past ones, too, have been sort of um, – precipitated on the idea that, you know, Ukraine needs to not only use them well, but also be winning. To me, this doesn't necessarily seem like the best model, of course, because, you know, especially in the early days of the war, the, the outcome wasn't necessarily that clear. And if, you know, if you basically have to give weapons and gear and, and hope for a win, you know, they might actually need more and more gear. So I wonder, how do we approach this and kind of move forward to a better solution in the future if a, a similar situation were to happen? Mm. Um, so, CJ, you just reminded me of one thing about the last question, and then I'll come to that. You know, it, it's interesting. There's so much stuff being provided, uh, and this is uh, a lot of pretty sophisticated equipment, whether we're talking about Gephards or Triple Sevens or HIMARS or uh, all the other stuff, Caesar and Crabs and so on. Every one of those has a hundreds of parts and, that are not compatible with other things. And so the more varied types of systems you have, the more difficult the uh, the logistics because you've got to have maintenance, um, you know, repair parts, et cetera, for all these different types of systems. So eventually, and, I, and this is where I imagine that uh, the U.S. and other allies that are working with Ukraine for the long term, you know, as part of an overall strategy for the Black Sea region, which will include, uh, more sophisticated military cooperation with Ukraine and others in the region, um, helping them to get down to a a more streamlined, you know, this is your tank, this is your howitzer, this is your truck, um, to to reduce the maintenance and, and logistical challenges associated with that. Now, CJ, you, I apologize because I started thinking about parts. <laughs> The, the, no, the, so the, the model of providing aid that is basically based on Ukrainian victories, do you think this is a, an appropriate model for giving military no, aid? Or no, how, no. Should, how should it be framed? It should be framed on what is our desired strategic outcome. That's, that's the only thing that should matter is what do we want to happen? And, of course, uh, my only – and I do mean my only criticism of the administration is that they have – uh, except for one time where Secretary Austin said it, then I, he was not allowed to say it again. He's to say, we want Ukraine to win, and we're going to make sure that Ukraine wins, and we're going to help them and give them everything they need to win. And that means, okay, if they need uh, 45 HIMARS rocket launchers and 300 uh, XYZ howitzers or whatever, that's what we're going to do because it is our strategic interest that Ukraine is successful and that they win. That's what should drive it, not like, oh, they're doing good, let's give them more. Now, I'll be happy if some countries want to get in on the kill and say, all right, you know, I'm less concerned that Russia about Russian retribution against me if I give the Ukrainians something, fine, pile on. But that's not what should drive the uh, support, in my view. Thank you very much. Uh, I would like to move on to John Howard from Britain. Thanks, Axel, and good evening, sir. Um, from, this, from the perspective of regime survival, um, what, if any, upsides might exist for Putin uh, in now declaring war? Um, could it, for example, uh, enable him to pass responsibility for the failure of the operation back to the general staff rather than the, the, you know, the direct ownership he's, he's taken of it at the moment? Thank you. Yeah, that's a great question. Um... I think that uh, the um, I, I'm not a Russian expert. I don't know what I'm not a Kremlin knowledgeist, um, but I think that most of the people 
there in the so-called inner circle and maybe the second and third rings, they they know what's going on. And um, it wouldn't surprise me if the president of the Russian Federation decided to try and, and hang this on his uh, minister of defense and chief of defense. And like I said earlier, I'm, I'm surprised they both are still in post, um, frankly. But um, I, I, I don't think it's it's going to be quite that simple as, okay, we're now we're at war uh, and, and Russia's under attack. You can see some reports that have been coming out, some of the spin coming out of some of the uh, Kremlin cheerleaders that, well, the only reason we haven't finished the job yet is because it's all, it's Russia against the whole world. I mean, it's Russia against all of NATO uh, and, and completely NATO uh, supporting these knucklehead Ukrainians, and that's the only reason that we're losing. So they are perhaps setting uh, beginning of a, of a new fairy tale about it's now the Russia's survival. But I think um, there will be some people that will buy that, um, just like, unbelievably, there are some people in the U.S. that believe that this is um, that Russia that is Russia is going to win, and that we should not be supporting Ukraine. Um, I think that uh, um, this that that won't sell. I think the Russians will be humiliated. Part of the reason they haven't done this big mobilization is because people won't show up, and even if they did have fifty thousand people show up, uh, they won't be able to properly equip and train them in time. To make a difference, so I, I I think he's trying to split it down the middle somehow, avoid doing that, but yet not get blamed for the loss and, and avoid a disaster somehow while protecting himself. And he certainly spent the last twenty years uh, ensuring regime's survival. Hmm. Okay, that. thank you very much. We have Yehuda joining us. Yehuda. Good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm living a dream. Living a dream. We've caused a bit of a race on the internet here. Uh, uh, at your report, we made some pronouncements uh, about Kharkiv Oblast and now about the Kherson uh, situation and soon to be probably the Donbass situation. Um, what can you say? People ask the question quite often. They say, how is this possible? How could so many gains be done so quickly for someone on your level? Um, isn't this isn't where you want to be? Isn't this a sign of You've done all the planning, right? Well, this, what's happening now is the culmination of, of months of hard work. I believe that the, the Ukrainian general staff understood Clausewitz's concept of the culminating point, and they saw that the Russians were going to culminate probably in August. And so months ago, they began to work on uh, the counteroffensive, uh, which is why they had the, they had the courage to not take all the new equipment and new troops and push them into the line, but instead have them ready to launch, to be the, the fist, if you will, for this uh, counteroffensive and to get the necessary artillery ammunition and so on in place ready to support it. Uh, and, and when we, I mean, not a day goes by that I don't see a video or report of Russian units that are quitting, uh, that don't want to fight, uh, they're in terrible condition. You look at every video I've seen of any Russian position look like the morning after a rock concert. I mean, trash everywhere, personal kit lying on the ground, ammunition in the dirt. All of these are indicators of poorly disciplined, poorly trained units uh, that are not focused on the fight. And uh, or you look inside captured vehicles. It looks like a dumpster in there. And, you know, every sergeant I was ever around would always pound us about, you know, there's a load plan. There's a reason certain things go in a certain place inside a vehicle, not um, not trash and personal gear lying all over the place because it, you can't fight like that. And so all of these indicators uh, tell me that the Russians are going to crack. And, and that's what it looks like. And, of course, uh, in the absence of, of leadership, uh, real determined leadership um, to to help them realize what they, what they need to be doing. It's even worse, and and uh, the Ukrainians have done a good job destroying commanders and command posts. Amazing. I don't want to indignify you with the with the question, but it does come out a lot on Russian Telegram and uh, some strange ones. Uh, this is 4D chess. The Russian command has the Ukrainians exactly where they want them. They uh, 
they've allowed them to do this. Goodwill gestures uh, in a word or two. So, well, look, that, no, who's, who's surprised that they would um, be uh, trying to put the best possible spin on it? Because, um, you know, they're, otherwise they're going to have to admit that they either were lied to or they lied all along about um, capabilities and what this was all about. I, one of the reasons I think I failed to appreciate how bad um, the Russians have performed was I did not realize or I failed to realize the depth of the corruption there. Um, the false the numbers. The, uh, say again? The depth of the rot. Yeah, rot. That's also a good word. Um, that you know, when somebody reports we've got 900,000 troops, when probably maybe they had 600,000 warm bodies um, and then uh, quality control, quality assurance on, on uh, maintenance, on uh, new tires, on radio gear. I mean, there are so many stories of troops being issued uh, rations that were expired before the doggone offensive started. I mean, this is all a reflection of corruption and a uh, lack of honest reporting. Um, so th- this is the kind of stuff that causes units to fall apart during, um, uh, under this kind of pressure. General, question for you. If I could paint a brief picture, if we look at, um, you know, possibly, and these are just rough numbers, let's possibly look at 10,000 Russians, eight, five to 10,000 Russian P- PWs in Izium in that salient. If we look at who knows, 20,000 Russians on the west side of the Dnipro River who are apparently talking about nego- uh, negotiating a, a surrender with all their equipment intact. If we look at Donbass, we see this uh, this vital road, the P66, going down from Izium straight into the rear of Sverdonetsk, where there are about four or five uh, mechanized rifle brigades uh, facing Bakhmut, two, one artillery division, one artillery uh, brigade, uh, and they're all engaged possibly fixed by Ukrainian forces on the Ukrainian side from Bakhmut into that area. Um, and you could you could see these follow-on forces coming down from Izium, perhaps, into Serodonetsk and cutting them off. Um, if you see all of this and then you hear a Russian general stand up at a security council meeting yesterday and say, you've lost this for us, Vladimir Vladimirovich, uh, and then you hear councils going cuckoo, and then you hear uh, Putin apparently is off to his mansion and he's not in a good mood... I, I I don't want to put you on the spot, but could could this be the end of a war in a week? I mean, well, no. I <laughs> as much as I wish it was, it's not going to end that fast. But um, I think you know you know the the famous uh, uh, quote from uh, Hemingway and uh, his novel "The Sun Also Rises," where one guy asked the other guy, "How did you go? How'd you go bankrupt?" And he says, uh, "Slowly at first, and then suddenly." I mean, that's. I think that's kind of what um, is happening, uh, could happen, um, that all of a sudden, because of the rot on the inside, and, uh, you know, if, if, you're, if you've got an institution that's so corrupt, you know, people are not going to um, go out on a limb to protect each other. I think there'll be a lot of, there'll be more people falling out of windows um, or, or trying to get out of there. Um, it, it's going to be interesting to watch, but I've, I'm reluctant to predict a, such a rapid fall like that. I, I'm going to stick with uh, back to the 23 February line uh, by the end of this year and Crimea early next year and, and hope that it happens sooner. Thank you so much. I guess there's some other hands. Yep. Jim. Uh, General, thank you so much for everything you've done. Uh, as, as former commanding general of Army, uh, U.S. Army Europe, can you talk to Another commanding general of, of, of the Ukrainian army, uh, the, the second army of the world now, I think we can all agree. Um, how far, yeah, I'm sure you, 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 uh, you, you know him, you encountered him in your professional duty. Can you speak to how General Zaluzhny embodies the, the fighting spirit and professionalism of, of the Ukrainian armed forces? Thank you. I loved it uh, the other day when he was... Uh, reportedly um, telling, hey, everybody, shut the hell up. Quit <laughs> quit talking about what we're doing. I mean, he was trying to emphasize the importance 
of OPSEC. And uh, I think he was also probably role-playing a little bit to emphasize the deception about Herson. Uh, but, um, I mean, the guy is a, is a soldier. And when I've, uh, I have had the privilege to speak to him uh, some, and uh, he's, he's serious. Um, there's, no, there's no wasted um, theatrics. I mean, the guy's business. And, um, and it's, it's paying off. And, you know, he's got an awful lot of responsibility. And uh, he's trying to do everything he can to get what his soldiers need. And th- but they're also, you know, they're trying to build this territorial defense force uh, while while they're at war. And so the you just think about, you know, George C. Marshall, when the U.S. Army, which at one point we were, like, I think, the 19th army in the world, right behind Bulgaria uh, at the start of uh, World War Two. And so you had to he had to grow an army. He had to do everything from. You know, new helmets, new jeep, new vehicles, to weapons, to you know, to a plan and and to build up stuff. Uh, while you've got gigantic political pressure coming from allies to do more faster, um, I, General Zeluzny strikes me as as a martial type figure, uh, certainly in, in what he's doing right now. Hey guys, I apologize. I have got to get on Polish TV here in about five minutes, so I hope you'll. Let me have the rest of the night off. Thank you so much, sir. We really appreciate it. Would you allow one quick question from our colleague, sure. who has been patiently waiting? Yes. M, shoot. Thank you, Axel. Thank you so much, uh, sir, for joining us. So you've just mentioned earlier that you see this ending uh, by the end of this year to the pre-23, uh, 23rd of February lines and then maybe Crimea next year. If I take that question uh further and say, how do you see the end game? Do you see a UN mission um, monitoring the borders between Ukraine and Russia? Because now it's not a hypothetical question. We know that Ukraine will go all the way to its southern territories and its southern borders. And Or do you see a, a demilitarized zone in the future? Or how, how do you see the, 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 the Nash equilibrium situation at the borders at the end of all this? Yeah. Okay. Good question. Good one to end on. First of all, we need to make sure that uh, war termination, uh, we're, we arrive at that after Ukraine has completely restored its sovereignty to include all of Crimea, all the Donbass, every inch of it. That's that's the objective, number one. Uh, number two, there are more than a million Ukrainian women, children, and men who have been deported and scattered around Russia. Every one of them needs to be accounted for and brought back home to Ukraine, and we can't let that um, be forgotten. And then, of course, there's going to be a massive effort that's already underway, I think, uh, by the European Union and the U.S. and others to help rebuild Ukraine because the world needs uh, grain and other product coming out of Ukraine again, uh, mineral resources as well as, uh, as well as food. So big effort there to help reestablish that. And you've got damaged nuclear power plants. I mean, there's a lot of work that's going to have to be done as well as the cleanup. Uh, never in a thousand years would I be in favor of any kind of a UN or anybody else uh, uh, zone, demilitarized zone, um, because that only, that plays into Russian hands. I think that uh, we will, I see the United States working uh, closely with Ukraine and probably with other allies uh, as part of a comprehensive Black Sea strategy, which is being uh, required. If if Senator Shaheen and Romney's legislation is passed in the law, the U.S. government will have to develop a strategy for the Black Sea region. And, and that would be comprehensive in terms of logistics. I'm sorry, not logistics, economic development, development uh, and so on, but also military cooperation. I don't know this for a fact, but I think the U.S. is seriously considering a uh, a three-star or two-star headquarters like we had in Iraq and Afghanistan specifically for the purpose of uh, helping with this uh, train, advise, assist, modernize, building up the institutions. Um, I, I hope we do that as, an, as a part of an overall Black Sea strategy. Um, but the Russians... Uh, they they will uh, they'll be lucky if um, Ukraine is content with and they should be 
you know, securing their own borders. And that's one of the outcomes is that Ukraine is capable of continuing to defend its own borders. And I, I'm going to make one other prediction. Uh, Belarus, Lukashenko is right now regretting that he is handcuffed to a corpse. Uh, there's a reason that we've seen no Belarusian troops coming into Ukraine. They would be slaughtered. Uh, I think they have 10 battle groups, BTGs, excuse me, uh, and they're worse than the Russian ones. So uh, he's able to get by by allowing the Russians to operate from Belarus, but he's smart enough not to send his own troops in there. And I think he's probably looking for an off-ramp of some sort, um, if he can find it. Guys, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, sir.